Hey, it's Marie. Welcome to the Cook Brody Podcast. In this episode, I have a chat with Julia Washington. She's a biracial solo mom on the verge of being an empty nester, and we have an awesome conversation about parenthood and how to create a space in our homes for our kids to talk to us about anything. We also share our thoughts on how to talk to kids about the very important topic of racism. Enjoy! Hi, Julia. Welcome to the Cook Cody podcast. I'm so grateful to be able to have a conversation with you today. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am really, really excited about our conversation because we are going to be focusing on parenting authentically. I was wondering if we could start with you sharing a little bit more about when you first became a parent your pregnancy, your birth story, and how that experience was like for you. Yeah, that's actually, I was just sharing that story with a friend of mine because she is pregnant due in April. So um, I relived it recently. So I was very young when I became a parent. I was um, 20 when I found out I was pregnant and I was actually planning to move to Seattle. Um, My siblings had been up there. So I thought, why not make it three for three? Um, And then the unexpected discovery (laughs) of my son, um, I made the decision to stay home. And I found out in April of 2004. He was due in November of 2004. In July of 2004, I was at a doctor's appointment and she said, you know, you're starting to dilate. <laughs> what? That's terrifying. Um, also, what? And, you know, I'm 20, no life experience. It's really scary. And at that point, I was very much alone. I, I had my folks, but, you know, it was just me and the, the baby. Um, and then a few months later, he, I, um, I was told I needed to stop working and I needed to limit my activity. I was very physically active. I was doing yoga. I was working out. I'm not extensive working and I modified my workouts, but still didn't do that because I needed to save, 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 save. Um, at that point I had dropped out of college. I had dropped out of college prior to getting pregnant, but I had been out of college for about a year at that point. Um, so I didn't stop working. And then one weekend in October, I fell and it was like, no big deal. I'm fine. And then two days later, I'm in the hospital. And then three days later, he was born. And it was really scary because um, those last five weeks, you do so much preparation. And I didn't get any of that. It was, you know, the first couple hours in the hospital, it was okay, well, we're not sure you're in labor, you know, let's, well, we're going to monitor you. Let's keep you overnight. Let's see what's going on. Let's test, test, test. And then by Monday morning, it was, okay, you're definitely in labor. We've called your doctor and we're going to figure out what's going on. Prior to that, at the last appointment I had, my regular appointment, my physician, my OB said, well, he's facing the wrong direction. So I want you to work really hard these next five weeks, work with your yoga instructor to try and work on, you know, getting him to flip. P.S. I was 145 pounds. <laughs> so and I'm 5'5". Five, five, so it's not like there was a whole lot of space. Um, and so that was the plan was to try and get, you know, him to be facing the correct, the, the correct way so we could have a safe delivery. And, you know, two weeks went by and he was born. So we never had that opportunity. So we had to have an emergency cesarean. I was very, very lucky. My godmom was a labor and delivery nurse for, I mean, she helped deliver me. (laughs) Um, And so she was there and she was a really big advocate for um, my mental, my medical needs. They had, I'm allergic to penicillin and they put the wrong allergy on my bracelet. And so had she not been there, who knows what would have happened. Um, And I'm very, very grateful to her for that. And then I was bedridden probably for eight weeks after that, after having him. It was no driving. I mean, they were even like, don't watch comedy movies because it's going to hurt. You know, we don't want you to hurt your body. We want you to heal naturally. Um, But yeah, he was just a tiny little nugget. They were worried that he wasn't going to be fully 
developed and and they were very concerned about having so I had to deliver at a very specific hospital because they had an, um, a neonatal care unit there um, but he came out okay everything came out okay it's like I keep telling him he was meant to be here because he's defied all the odds <laughs> Because I was on birth control and, you know, we, we, he, and he still showed up anyway, <laughs> you know, and, and I had sort of all these series of unfortunate events and they were concerned about him not being healthy. He was healthy. Um, so it was very years later, I can think about it now and not feel scared, but it, you know, it was, I was fit. I was healthy. I was young and to be a high risk pregnancy, that's really at 20, that's really scary. But thankfully, I had my parents, and they were really, really big support. I mean, it, it took them a while, but they ended up being very loving and supportive because we were not a married couple. <laughs> my child was very much a surprise. <laughs> Do you remember how you felt when you left the hospital with your baby? Really scared because... Um, his dad and I hadn't talked to each other. I I'm in the hospital. We're trying to figure out what's happening. My best friend at the time dials the number of a close friend of ours to say, hey, Julia's in labor and who answers the phone? My son's dad. And I hadn't talked to him in months. So it was very scary because I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what was expected of me. I was still barely an adult myself. I had all these big plans to move to Seattle. I was going to get a job at a paper. Um, I was going to live that starving artist life. I had some inheritance money from my grandfather that I was going to live on while I tried to find a job. And, and that was my big dream was to start out in Seattle and kind of work my way back down to LA. And I had these huge I mean, I watched award shows dreaming of what my speech would be and what show would be what got me my win, right? And and all of that just kind of became very cloudy and fuzzy. And what does it mean now? I have no employable skills. I'm a college dropout and have this like dependent child. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Cry a lot in the beginning, but I feel like that was normal. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely crying with your baby is normal yeah I, and he was six pounds hmm. 13 ounces so it's like small <laughs> it's like, well, this is a small human what do I do and we can't talk to each other and how am I gonna and my mom my mom's advice was you're gonna instinctively know and I thought okay and then I didn't instinctively know and so it was like okay don't panic just pretend like you know what you're doing <laughs> Yeah, de definitely the beginning, the newborn stage is, whew, I, I feel like I'm still kind of recovering from that stage. Mm -hmm. My son, my son is almost a year old and it was, it was really tough. And when I talk to my friends who have children themselves, I always like to ask them what was more difficult zero to one or one to two or two to three kids and majority of them always say zero to one like, mm -hmm. like there is something definitely very very special about your first kid that changes you to the very core absolutely absolutely because so the year before I lost my grandfather and we were really really close and I was so I was still kind of in grief with with processing that grief when I found out I was pregnant. I literally found out the day before the one year anniversary of losing my grandfather. And so I thought at one point I thought this can't this isn't a coincidence like something's going on because, you know, we I was taking precaution. We were doing what was, you know, all the safe things to not procreate. <laughs> still happened and so um there's so much about my kid that reminds me of him it's wild <laughs> that's really sweet and and that that must create a very special connection with you mm -hmm. and with you and your son could yeah, you i tell him mm -hmm. sorry go ahead sorry go ahead oh 
I, w- I was just going to say, could you tell us more about, even though you had those fears, right, being a young mom and being by yourself, raising your baby, what were some things that you did that helped you to overcome those fears in being a new parent? The most, the main thing I did was, okay, you're a person, I'm a person, we're in different places in life, so I'm just going to talk to you like a person. <laughs> and and that really helped because then it sort of forced me into communicating with him from a very early age. I think a lot of times when we have small children, especially when we start having multiple small children, it's very easy to forget that they are a human being. And so we just, it's very easy to, to dismiss them. And so that was never my intention and that was never... I mean, it might have happened. It could have happened over the last 17 years. However, it was never intentional. And so it was very important to me to be like, okay, so we're getting ready for the day and just kind of sort of narrating what's going on in life. And and that helped me feel like I was in control of something because I was in control of nothing. So by taking sort of that approach of like, we're just going to talk it out and see what happens. I think I felt less pressure moving forward. And then as he got old enough to respond and sort of develop his, you know, as he's developing his personality and what his likes and wants are, you know, then he can start responding back and then it becomes a dialogue. And it just, I think, really helped lay that foundation to where we're just, I mean, he's a teenager now. So communication with teenagers is just a whole different game, but it's not like, when I reflect on my teenage years, I didn't tell my parents anything. It was tight lipped. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm going to my friend's house. Why do you need to know it, friend? Whereas, you know, with me and my son, it's how was your day? Oh, it was good. I have homework. A funny thing happened today or this happened today. Kind of stuff. There's not a whole lot of like having to pull out conversation from him. And I think that's because from the beginning, we just, I just talked to him. And I think that's, yeah. And it made him a good conversationalist. <laughs> you you definitely brought up a great point. The the importance of treating a baby, a child from the very beginning as its own entity, its own individual, that they are human beings with their own thoughts mm-hmm. and their own opinions and their own beliefs. And I feel like a lot of millennial parents have issues with the older generation's way of parenting is because their way was more of control and obedience and being agreeable. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on that. I was definitely raised by boomers and I was definitely expected to, we were to be agreeable and to do what we were told and to not argue. And unfortunately, that's not who I am. That's not my personality. My siblings and I are all very different from each other. And when I became a parent, I realized there's nothing wrong with treating your children differently because they all have different needs. And I wish that that's, I wish that message had been conveyed to the older generations because this expectation for all of us to do the same things was was hard for myself. I assume it was hard for my brother too, based on the trajectory of his life, but I'm not sure. But for me, it was hard, you know, taking, there are certain things about um, the education system that were hard for me to navigate and the expectation to try and do them. And then the lack of understanding of why I needed an alternative created sort of I think of them as divots in my life path that um not derailed what I wanted to do but made it harder and so when I look back on my parenting style and what I've chosen to do with my son it was very much more of an open conversation he is a different person from me his wants and needs are different than mine I I remember when he was little And he was very upset and I couldn't figure out why. So I have a hard time sometimes with um, processing emotions and processing different, you know, types of things that happen. And my mom was like, honey, do you need a hug? 
And he said, yes, I need a hug. And physical touch is not my love language either. It's not a thing I, I enjoy. I don't necessarily like being touched. It's a very, I have to have a very deep relationship with that person already. And so that was a hard transition for me because I didn't realize that him being upset, giving him a hug would make him feel better. He was probably five when that happened. So then it was work for me. So now I have to meet him there, right? It's not only grandma can give that to him. That's not fair. So now it's me saying, okay, honey, do you need a hug? And then be okay with hugging. And now I hug him to death and it drives him crazy. Um, <laughs> but it it's little things of, I, I was never met where I am as a person with my parents. And, you know, they're not terrible people. I don't want to paint them that way. It's just different parenting styles. And so it's, for me, it's, okay, where's, what are my child's needs? Where do I meet them? And how do I support them and love them through? So that way we can sort of reduce the pain that could potentially come because that old adage, parents just don't understand. And my parents don't get me. I feel like that's unnecessary if we recognize who our children are and pay attention to who they are becoming. And then, and then we do, then they will understand Then parents will understand and will love you through those things. Um, but when you start like tying in personality disorders and things like that, it's a whole different ball game. Um, and I think the expectations in parenting too, right? So telling parents, this is a human, they're going to be, they're not going to be a pretty little dolly that you can dress up and do all these things and expect all of this from that may happen or it may not. And we don't do enough of that pre-conversation when it comes to having kids either. Like, what are you going to do if your child doesn't have any of your interests? How are you going to try and relate? Like, what are you going to do if your child, um, makes a decision that is completely different from what you would do. Like, how would you love them and support them? You know, and just different things like that. We don't have those conversations. And I think that's where a lot of the hurdles and burdens and beginnings of trauma can happen. I agree because from my life, I've seen how a lack of compassion in the home has created unnecessary pain. And trauma that could have been avoided if mm-hmm. adults were willing to have compassion for themselves so that they could have compassion for other people. And I think it's it's yeah. wonderful that you do model that to your son, even though he is now in a different stage in life in terms of his development, because as we know, babies, toddlers preteen teenagers they all have their different challenges but yet something they all need is grace and compassion yeah and someone to meet them where they are absolutely because it's hard it's scary i mean you know, 16 years on this planet isn't enough to figure out everything. And the expectation for these teens to act like 40-year-olds is just not okay. Your, your brain's still developing. You're still figuring out. You're still learning. And another aspect of parenting that we don't talk about is sort of that detangling from. So you spend all these years investing in your child and making decisions that ho- you hope are good for them and you develop this relationship. And then there's the separation that has to start happening if you want them to go to college um, or if they want to move out or move away, your relationship is going to change. It is inevitable, but there's no guiding manual I at least I haven't found any yet because I am definitely going through that process of like what's my life gonna look like in a year how am I gonna cope I've been a mom since I was 20 my entire adult life has been caring for somebody else what does that mean now that he's going to college what does that look like and I joke that I just cry every day because I think about him leaving me, but not in, in, it's a, it's, I'm it's half, a half truth because again, my entire adult life has been a parent. What does that mean? I've never not had to care for somebody else. So I have no idea. Whereas my friends who all had kids in their thirties, 
know what it's like to be an adult and how to care for themselves and how to manage things themselves as a single. And they had to learn to transition how to do that as a married couple and then a married couple with kids. That's not true for me. It was, I'm a parent. (sighs) Okay. What do I like? What do I don't like? How, how am I navigating this? Okay. I've got it. I've got it now. I've got it down. I figured it out. Okay. Now that I figured it out, it's ending. (laughs) What do I do now? And it's really scary. And so I try really hard to open up that door to have those conversations about like, you know, these are some scenarios that could happen and being more open about my own life, my finances, you know, I used to hide dating from him. I'm not doing that anymore because I want, I, I wouldn't say he's had a sheltered life. There's nothing about having a non-present parent who comes in and out of your life that creates an unsheltered life. But there are some things that it was like, we don't need to worry about those things right now. So they don't need to be present for you. And now I'm slowly starting to like bring those things in like dating. Um, so he can kind of see like, it's okay to, you know, figure out what kind of dates you like and, you know, who, what kind of people you'd like to date. Like it's, it's, a, it's like finding a job, you know, the first one isn't always going to be the right one <laughs> if, unless you're lucky enough to find the first one being the right one. Um, and it's always been, okay, here's where I'm coming from kid. And if he wants to challenge that, we're at a point now where that's okay because he's becoming an adult. And isn't it our job as parents to help guide our children into adulthood so they can be successful for them? Not successful like on a universal level of like you go to college and you get wealthy and you have a job and you do all these things, but what does success look like for him? So it's my job to figure out how to help him build that foundation so when he leaves my house, he's prepared. Julia, if your son was a part of our conversation right now, what do you think he would say if I asked him what the best advice you've given him is? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. We have so many just very deep conversations that's hard to... Take your, take your time. The most recent one we had. Yeah. The most recent one we had because he's going off to college and a lot of people are giving me a hard time about being supportive of him wanting to go into the creative arts industry. I mean, to the point where I have strangers telling me it's a terrible idea and I'm just like, you don't know my kid. Um, So I recently told him, I literally do not care. If you decide that you want to be a model, great, do it. If you want to go into acting, do it. I'm going to be here. I'm going to support you through it. I'm going to love you through it. Just remember, (laughs) some decisions you can make can derail those plans. So when I say make good choices, I mean, think about the long term. And I kind of reinforced that in our conversations and sort of brought that into our conversations over the last year. So that way he's, you know, thinking long-term because it's very hard to think long-term at 17 you know because 25 is old (laughs) not to mention 35 like heaven forbid that's you know decades away but it's always been how is this going to affect you long-term that's the main piece of advice and guidance I'm trying to help him understand because I don't want him to wake up at 31 or 41, or even 51, and think, man, I wish I had tried. I'd rather him say, I tried and I failed, or I tried and I was successful, than I wish I had tried. It is tough to have a long-term perspective at that age. I'm trying to think when I was 17, oh, I wish I could give her a hug (laughs) and tell her it's okay. Yeah. How do you, how do you um sorry let me re- rephrase my question if you could go back to when you were 20 and with the experiences you've had parenting your son from him being born and now he is almost an adult what would what would you tell your 20 year 
20 year old self move away (laughs) (laughs) I think I should have gone to Seattle anyway and tried it because I think as much as it was wonderful to have my parents around and the other set of grandparents around I think that they unintentionally hindered um, my abilities in a way not just in parenting but just professionally as well where I live there's not a whole lot of opportunity and it has been a challenge um, financially and 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 that's true anywhere I'm sure and I think that I'm not as resilient as I would like to be because I allowed when it got too hard I allowed other people to come in and and take over which ended up always being a bad thing because they were well-intentioned, but again, they weren't considering my needs and what I was attempting to do. They just came in and tried to fix what I was trying to do with my life. Um, and it backfired every time. So there's a lot of, um, not that starting over is a bad thing. It's never a bad thing. There was just a lot of, uh, starting over that didn't necessarily need to happen and I worry about how dependent I am on my parents now as a 37 year old woman so I would I'm emotionally independent to an extent (laughs) until my parents come into the picture that I'm very emotionally dependent on my parents and I think that's a construct from the last 17 years and I'm seeing it now and I wish I'd put a stop to it then it is tricky because it does take a village to raise a child but then what do we do mm-hmm. when our village may not be reliable may not be emotionally stable they Mm-hmm. very conditional I mean there were years where it was conditional and it was just like I am not equipped to handle those conditions you know and a lot of reaffirming of like I think you don't know me right now and I'm wondering if you ever knew me and I'm very concerned and you know not to say that my parents never knew me but I think that they had expectations and then there was what I was how has your relationship with your parents changed while you were raising your son? Because I assume they, they've been there the whole time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they have been. I actually kind of love it because my, um, my dad is my son's favorite person. And that makes me so happy because my dad is a really good – they are really good people. Um, it's just recognizing and realizing that we're very – different in our approaches and our life experiences as well as generational um I mentioned my parents are boomers um it when I was younger I'm the youngest of three and so there was very much the baby of the family mentality my siblings would say that I was spoiled I was not spoiled okay (laughs) not all the youngest children are spoiled (laughs) um but our family dynamic changed dramatically when I was 12 because my dad had a, a stroke and he, um, I remember it as him almost dying. I don't know if that's the truth in the situation because there was a lot of secrecy about what was going on because I was 12. And I don't know if it was intentional or if, or if they're again, back to the whole, like, you know, Julia probably can't handle it. She's a kid which I probably, I think it would have been better served to like share the experience of what the truth and the reality was happening. Um, And so that changed the family dynamic. And then just struggling through that, not fully understanding what was going on. I think now that I've gone through years of therapy (laughs) and now that I've gone through my own reflection, I'm realizing now that I think what was going on, all these things I was trying to do and change. I I wanted out. I wanted out of the house. I wanted to go somewhere where I could grow because I wasn't feeling like I was growing. And I can say that now. I I don't think I would have said I would have been able to identify that even 10 years ago. And so 
here I come at 20. I'm like, I'm going to get out. I'm moving to Seattle. And then I self-sabotage. Apparently that's a thing that I've done numerous times over the years. Um, so then it becomes this sort of crippling. Well, you need us. You need us. You can't do this alone. You need us. And just hearing that message over and over and over again, you start to believe it. And then um, I kind of got comfortable with living at home. I was paying a very small amount of rent. I was working uh, multiple jobs and it was just very convenient to be staying with my parents and just kind of living there. And so we created sort of this healthy dynamic and it actually, it wasn't terrible. I shouldn't say it was terrible because it, it, it was pretty good. My dad worked a lot growing up, so he missed a lot of our lives. So he got to experience a lot of that with my son and I'm really grateful for that. But then we had this sort of family situation happen. My brother and I had a falling out. Um, it wasn't healthy. And we were no longer, my son and I were no longer safe. And that really changed the dynamic for me and my parents. It went from you told me I was supposed to need you. Um, and now I'm asking you for help and you're saying it's not our problem. That was hard. Because I, I 28 at the time, still not fully equipped to handle big life stuff because I still kind of lived in this bubble. And, and, you know, here we are 10 years later and we're still, we're in a place. I think I spent two years not talking to my parents, but I still let my son spend time with them. Um, and I want to say probably 2012 I started talking with them again and we started kind of healing again because I had moved out and I had gotten my own place finally and we were in our own space. And now I actually had that literal option to shut the door and they couldn't come in. Um, and that made a huge difference and things have gotten a little bit better. It's still not the same as what it was when we were smaller children. And I think I crave that. I think I miss that because it. I don't remember it being... A situation I don't remember the bad stuff the way that my my mom does but I think that from childhood but I think that more recently I've been thinking about this a lot because my parents are in their 70s now it's that moment of like oh my gosh like not only who am I without my kid who am I without my parents because I've never left Yes, I got my own place, but I've never actually left. Without minus those two years, we talk every day. So now it's like, I think I need to like figure out what it's like to have parents that are not everyday parents because I'm I'm grown. <laughs> you know, I'm dealing with not becoming an everyday parent. I need to let my parents not be an everyday parent. But also, I'm battling that. Do they even want to not be everyday parents? They because because they keep reeling me in, right? They keep reeling me in, and I just don't. It's a weird. It's and so because of all those things, I won't do that with my son. I'm not gonna like put that codependent. It's not codependency, but it's definitely like the. It's I'm comfortable there now, so I'm just that whole I'm just gonna stay there I don't want that for my kid I want him to go and figure out who he is and know that I'm here to catch him if he falls but I'm not gonna be there every day like I can't be there every day that's not fair to him because that's where I'm at figuring out like who am I without my parents every single day I'm a grown woman I should know how to be that person I want him to know who he is at 37 without me every day my husband and I talk a lot about boundaries and how a lack of boundaries does affect family dynamics and in in Chinese culture which is the culture that I grew up in it is very common for families to be up in your business and it's funny because I've tried to talk to my family about boundaries and they're like don't share your western ideologies with us <laughs> Because they, they are comfortable. They are comfortable with the 
door wide open, people coming in and out. I grew up with my grandparents living with us, and my uncles and my aunts and my cousins would be at our house several times a week, every week for years. And I thought that that was normal. And when I got mm-hmm. married and I married an American who was like, we need our space. And I'm like, what? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's been it's been an interesting experience. My husband and I navigating two different cultures and wanting we have the same goals, right? Like we want our home to be safe and we want our son to see us as trustworthy people and for him to have his own identity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, navigating race and different cultures in a very mm-hmm. multifaceted society, which is the United States of America. I was wondering if we could talk about the importance of having discussions about racial issues with our children in 2022? Uh, Absolutely. So my father is Black and my mother is Italian. And they've been married for 50 years. So that has not been an easy road for sure. And so my, I'm, I'm the fair, I'm not fair skinned, but I'm the lightest one of all my siblings. So it's a little bit harder for people to recognize and identify. They just misidentify me all the time. <laughs> what are you is the question I hear the most. And when I had my son, I said to his father, "Is like, look, this is a dice game. We don't know what shade this child's going to come out. We have no idea who he's going to take after. But I just need to know that whatever comes out of my body is yours. So I not I don't want to deal with the whole accusation of whatever because that could have been a thing. And he, you know, came out a very tan baby. Very cute. He's very cute. Um, and then as he got older, it became very clear, like, oh, we're gonna have to he not to have the same. Con- I don't have to have the same conversations with him that my folks had to have with us, but we still had similar conversations because it turned into the talk of like no one's going to know that you have a connection to the black community by looking at you you know there is some sort of intrinsic thing within the black community that's that even if you're light they still kind of like you're one of us and they may see that in you but they may not know also grandpa's black and so people may not believe that grandpa is your grandpa and so when that happens you need to know that it's not about you and it's not about it's not about what our family is. It's about those people's perceptions and what their beliefs are and what they think is supposed to be family. And so we've, you know, we kind of grew up having those conversations around the table as a family because my father was in law enforcement as well. So we there was a lot of disconnect between what was happening in our community compared to what was happening nationally. Um, especially in the 90s in in the States. And so just always around the table discussing race and race issues and gender issues. My mom is very much, you know, um, um, a feminist in the sense of like, she fought for her career. She fought to be educated. She fought to have the career she wanted and the, and the value that she brought to her work. So I didn't stop doing that just because I had a kid. And, but it was having to modify it to make sure that we were having it at us, having that conversation in a way that they could understand or that he could understand and making sure that whenever something happened in the real world, he felt like he could come home and talk to me about it because that's the hardest part is coming home and not having somebody to talk about it. And my parents have always been very open in that way especially when it comes to because we didn't get blatant racism or I didn't I shouldn't say we didn't I didn't my brother has he's the darkest one out of all of us and so the conversations are different for each child which is leads me down it's so interesting that my parents were able to modify the race conversations per child but couldn't modify any of the other types of conversations per child so I don't know what the disconnect there is but it's that's 
fascinating to me. Um, and now my son sees it and he, and we have those conversations. And when we see things happen in the news, we, ha- we talk about it. How does, I always lead with, how does that make you feel? That's the, you know, I try to lead with that and then walking him through it. And then if he says something, or if I say something, we're in a place now where we can challenge each other's beliefs because I'm an older millennial. There are things, there are things that are archaic about older millennials because we're sort of, you know, dusting off the old world. And I appreciate that because we have, because he's forcing me to stay in a position of growth when it comes to those types of challenges. And I, I'm grateful to him for that because I see with our older generations, they're, they're un, it's not, it, not to make it a gross generalization, but I've noticed in my experience with our older generations, there's this unwillingness to learn and understand what the next generation is saying. And I don't want to be that person <laughs> ever. That's like, I, you know, it's like the most frustrating thing I think about being in your mid thirties is you have to deal with that I'm sure it's frustrating at 20 or 16 or what have you. Um, especially the summer of 2020, we had a lot of conversations in the house about what was going on and our concerns for family members who are darker shades than we are. And then also, you know, it unearthed people we had known for years that we thought were, um, that we thought didn't have any sort of racial prejudice because they've never demonstrated it. And then the summer of 2020 happens and you learn new levels of them and you have to make that decision. And so when I learned those things about friends, instead of talking about it to myself, I worked through it with my kid. Okay. So this friend said this, and it makes me feel this way. And I'm trying, I don't know where I'm at with it. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. I don't know if I should confront them, but here's where I'm at with it. So again, bringing him into the the thought process of how I got to the conclusion, um, and that's just that's just what we do in our house. And I think people are so scared to talk about race, and that's so fascinating to me because in our family we have to talk about it. We just you know people aren't believe people don't believe that my mom's my mom. People don't believe my dad's my dad. So we have to talk about race all the time. It is a hugely defining factor of my life. I wouldn't even know what to do if that wasn't part of my life. Why do you think people are afraid to talk about race? I think they're scared to find out what's deeper within them when it comes to it. There's a lot of, um, you can be upset and saddened by the past and there's this fraction of people who feel like they're the ones currently being attacked for it, even though they, quote, had nothing to do with it. Sure. Fine. At the same time, there's still a level of privilege that a certain group of people are benefiting from. And all anyone who is a person of color is asking for is that you acknowledge that and acknowledge that this isn't an equal and equitable society. And then there's the fear. It's fear. At the end of the day, it's all based in fear, you know, with the banning of books and the banning of types of history we teach or not even types of just parts of history that we teach. There's a fear there. And I think it's so interesting that you bring that up because my friend and I were just having this conversation about the book Passing, which was recently adapted to a movie on Netflix. And we were talking about how there's this misconception in the States where because the North was abolitionists, that meant they some for some reason our school system sort of says, okay, so the North thought slavery was bad. And then they sort of imply that they were anti-racist, but that's just not true. So there's this dancing around of like, we know these things are bad, but we're not going to get deeper about it. And I think because nobody knows how to talk about it and because of fear. When we let fear define us and guide our choices, I think that that is how society decays. And raising children in homes where there is open communication and people are afraid, are, are, sorry, people are not afraid to disagree or say something maybe just different 
you know? Mm-hmm. Because my, my husband and I did grow up in completely different parts of the world. And in Asia, it's interesting because in a lot of Asian countries, there, there people are racist towards light and dark-skinned people. My grandma grew up in communist China, and my my dad is white and my mom is Chinese. And I remember being a kid, I was like six years old. My grandma would do my hair every day before I went to school. And there was this one day she was doing my hair, and she was like, Marie, you're so beautiful. And I was like, thanks, grandma. And then she said, you're so beautiful, even though you're only half human. Because in in communist China, that's what they were taught in school, that the Chinese race is the purest race and everyone else is either like a devil or a ghost or basically not human. And being so young and hearing that, it really, really scarred me. And for a long time, I was ashamed. Mm -hmm. I was just ashamed that my dad was different, that he was an American, he was a Westerner. And I've had conversations with my dad about how things could have been different if we were more open about how things are in Asian society compared to in the U.S. Mm -hmm. My dad has lived in Singapore for more than 30 years, even though he was born and raised in California where it is a very diverse state and he's still very American in the sense that you know he he sees everyone as an equal and there isn't like a second class citizen thing going on like how it is in Singapore. I, I was going to ask what advice do you have for a new parent who wants to navigate such conversations but they don't know where to start? That's a really good question. I think it starts with being okay with being uncomfortable. And there are so many books out there that help start the conversation, especially, but so I'd say start with, you know, even at, even in younger ages or just diversifying your bookshelf is a huge part of it too, right? Not just having books that have lead characters that are white children, but other races as well, other stories as well. And I think that's the simplest and easiest way to start because then you're bringing other cultures in without having to I hate to say it this way, but without having to leave the comfort of your own home, because if you live in a predominantly white community, you know, how are you going to expand your, your mind in that way? Well, reading's the best way to do that. And then the other part of that is don't just stop with books, talk about what you've read and really have those conversations and think about questions that you could ask your child or ask your child if they have questions. I mean, it it doesn't really work before your child is (laughs) speaking. Um, But I think it starts with finding picture books and, and cardboard books that have characters that look different from your child, have ones that look like your child, but also different from your child. So that way, you know, there's this sort of familiarity there. And then as they get older, you know, just move up the grade level and then have those conversations. And it could be something simple like, Oh, how does, you know, how did that story make you feel? Or what did you, th- or just whatever it is that we normally do, like in an academic setting. Um, one of the things that I think is really, really, really important is to always ask your children about the stories and talk to your children about the stories that you're reading, because then it helps them sort of click in their brains and sort of get them to that point where they can think about those things and how that makes them feel. Because once we start, understanding how we feel about situations, it allows us to be comfortable and confident enough to ask questions or to be willing to learn. I love, if anybody needs book recommendations, (laughs) I love reading. And that's a huge part of the work I did in grad school was um, representation in literature. It's still a very small percentage. So I think that as long as we're show the industry that we want those books they'll hopefully expand on it but i think that's a huge part of it and then two i think it's going beyond your comfort level so if you're not comfortable with those conversations or if you're scared 
to have that conversation with your child. There are books out there. There are authors out there who are tackling those topics. And if you're not a reader, that's okay. There's um, audiobooks because it's like a podcast, right? <laughs> that you can listen to most of the time as well. But I think it's even if you're scared about what your child's going to ask or to what your child's going to think or believe, you still have to get through it because that shows your child it's okay to be scared and it's okay to work through that fear. Julia, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. I've definitely learned a lot and I really, really appreciate you. I'm. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it and I loved learning more about you as well. Could you share with listeners where they could learn more about you? Yes, I actually, I spend a lot of time on Instagram, maybe a little too much time on Instagram. Um, you can find me at the Julia Washington. And I talk a lot about books. I talk a lot about, I'm actually currently working through my emotions on parenting through Instagram because my child is moving <laughs> to college. But that is where you can find me. I'm, I love connecting with people online. I love talking about books with them. I love talking about parenting. I just, and TV and movies and, and Instagram is my home. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julia. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. This conversation actually reminded me of how I used to live in the past and how my dreams felt so far away. Maybe you felt like this before or you feel like this right now. I just want you to know that you are not alone. As a coach, I help people from toxic families get unstuck and live their best life. If there is a gap between the life you're living now and the life you really want, let's have a confidential conversation, just you and me. This is what I do all day, helping people who've been through loss or abuse or toxic situations. If I can support you in any way, please send me a message. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.